Eits jolla kali. Hey y'all, what's up? You're about to listen to facts, stories, interviews, gossip, live music, booty bump and beats, and much more fascinating things that will be so stunning, there's a possibility that your mind will blow. This show will start. Five, four, three, two, one. Due to the coronavirus, the following show is being produced and broadcast by the Yolokali youth from their homes. So sit back, relax at home, and enjoy the show. Hello everybody, you're listening to Chicago's 105.5 FM WLPN LP Lampin' Radio. And this is What's Up. My name is Emmanuel. And I'm August. Welcome to the first official show of season 16. Hey! This also happens to be What's Up's fifth year anniversary on the FM. OMG! Say congrats! Hey yo, let me go pop a bottle of champagne. I'll be right back. Today's show is Neighborhood Reporting, where we will be presenting a series of podcasts made by the Your Story, Your Way students in collaboration with City Bureau Fellows, reporting on topics of housing, immigration, and mental health. Due to the pandemic, the podcasts were scripted, recorded, and produced in fall 2020 100% virtually, with the power of love, determination, and some good wig glue, with just a little hint of YOLO magic. So if you hear some clicks, clacks, glitches, and pops, mind your business. We have so much in store for y'all today. Mm, y'all don't even know. Let's introduce our first podcast that was made by the Yolokali students, August Abitang and Giovanni Macias. August, what's it called? Yes, yes, yes. It's called Little Village big problems mm-hmm. highlighting the exploitative sale of the historic little village discount mall to developers novec construction and the repercussions that might entail let's listen the following segment is a part of the neighborhood reporting fall 2020 series a collaboration between city bureau and yolokali arts reach in chicago Twenty sixth Street. When you walk through the glass doors of Little Village's beloved discount mall, you're welcomed with mariachi music, Catholic statues, quinceanera dresses, botas, toys, food like La Michoacana, and much more. The discount mall is a retail space with more than 200 immigrant and Mexican American vendors. It's located in the heart of La Vida. The mall has brought the Little Village community together for almost 30 years. Neighborhoods like Little Village are usually portrayed as violent ghettos to avoid. But if you actually spoke to Little Village residents, you'll find countless people who are happy to be from La Villita. We're happy to be from Little Village. And we're sure other folks from the South Side are also happy of where they're from. The culture they build. The neighbors they love. The food and local businesses their hoods offer. It's what makes a community. Yes, there's violence, but there's also an abundance of love and culture on every block. 
There's no better display of this than Mexican Independence Day. Every 16th of September, you'll see neighbors driving down the streets, blasting their horns and waving their Mexican flags in cacophonous harmony. This year's Independence Day saw a public forum of community members of all ages in front of the discount mall to oppose the recent sale of the building. As you may or may not know, our beloved discount mall was sold to Novak Construction for $17.5 million in February. Novak's clients include Costco, Whole Foods, Target, Walmart, and CVS. Novak plans to close the discount mall and open a Target. They're willing to take away the livelihood of more than 200 vendors and their families in the community who have worked for 20 years. Not only will Novak potentially be erasing an established culturally and historically significant space, it will also speed up gentrification. The disco mall has been a staple of the neighborhood since 1991. The youth of the community will not and should not let it go quietly. While we talked about the issue in Little Village with the disco mall, it's important to know how the vendors are handling the situation. We will be presenting Cocoa Malagon, a Chicago resident for more than 25 years, a mother of two, and the vendor in the disco mall of fabulous quinceanera dresses, which she works in partnership with her husband. Cocoy sells every lady's dream dress, whether it's for quinces, prom, or any special event. She works to make that dream come true. While the pandemic has slightly affected her business, the sale of the disco mall and other factors has hurt not just her, but all the vendors. Let's hear what Cocoy has to say about how the situation is being handled. Uh, mira, uh, la historia comienza con, con mentiras. Realmente es una gran mentira. Los vendedores nos enteramos en noviembre del año pasado de una posible venta y nos enteramos por los medios de comunicación. Entonces decidimos juntarnos un grupo de más o menos unas 30 vendedores y fuimos a la oficina de George Cárdenas. Le hicimos la pregunta directa. ¿Qué sabe de la venta del disco mall? Y puso una cara de sorpresa de, ¿what? Pero nos, nos contestó, no sé de lo que hablan. En realidad no hay ningún proyecto, no hay nada claro. Sus palabras típicas, no hay nada firmado, no hay nada seguro. Entonces dijo, pero si yo supiera que va a haber una venta, seguro que se los hago saber y veríamos cómo trabajaríamos en eso. Pero les aseguro que yo estoy de su lado. Entonces uh, realmente mintió porque en febrero del, próximo, del siguiente año se vendió el mall. Wow, just powerful words from Cocoe. And now for the English translation. This is what Cocoe said. The story starts with a big lie. The vendors found out last year in November of a possible sale with little communication. This caused roughly 30 vendors of the mall to gather and speak to Alderman Cardenas. In his office, Cocoy says the vendors were straightforward and asked Cardenas, Hey, what do you know about the sale of the disco mall? She described his reaction as surprised like a forced what? He answered that he doesn't know what the vendors were talking about, that in reality, there's no project. Kokoi mentioned that he said in his typical words, there's nothing signed, there's nothing sure of, and that if there was a sale, that he'll let the vendors know, and that either way he's on the vendor's side. 
Kokoi then ends with, In reality, he lied, because in February of this year, the mall was sold. And so coming back with what Kokoi said, um, we gotta think about, like, how does it feel being lied to, especially by someone that's supposed to help their neighborhood, you know? Um, a lot of us are usually unaware, or, you know, aldermen, you know, that are, like, they run for to become aldermen. You know, a lot of them is just a lot of talk, you know, and not, not a lot of action, and so, or a lot of false promises. And so, you know, Kokoi also said to me before, she was like, we put him in that position. She's like, we, we didn't know what his intentions were because he said his intentions were that he wants to do things for the community. He said he wants to support the community. He wants Little Village to be Little Village, you know? And so now that we see him, um, you know, someone that we trusted, you know, wholeheartedly, now do this to us, especially to the vendors, it's just, it's just crazy, you know? It's outrageous. How how could someone we trusted to to protect us and to to stand up for us like just betray us like that? It's it's a it's a real slap in the face. And I think on top of that, the most egregious uh, thing that I heard about this was the two hundred no I'm sorry twenty thousand uh, dollar donation from Novak and to uh, yes. to Cardenas. That and then it was like no one, no one uh, even said anything. You know that was how you gonna expect us to trust them after that. You know, that's that's suspect. It really is, and it's just it's it's honestly very saddening because um, again, like Okoye said, we elected him. You know, or like the community elected him. We put our trust in him, and for him to just like you said, like slap us, slap slap our faces like that. You know, it's just. It's just hurtful, you know? It, it really is. At this point, it's like, well, we're all going through a pandemic. We're all, like, you know, short on money, short on this. It's like he decides to take the community, especially the vendors, and their most vulnerable moments and just take away their livelihoods because that's really what he's doing, especially with that $200,000 donation that Nova gave towards Cardenas. I read that that donation was towards the community, but I've heard that he you know, that donation wasn't um, used on the community. Went right in his pocket. I mean, you know, allegedly, that's what I'm assuming, you know. Um, but especially on these on these times, it's, it's just it's just hurtful. And I mean, even like how this will affect the livelihood of the vendors, you know, a lot of the vendors are migrant workers, not just from Mexico, but other parts in Latin America. Or so I, I remember going once and some of them were from the Middle East. Um, and it, it's just, it's just hurtful, like, to see that because it's like, like me coming from, you know, my parents are immigrants and they came here to the U.S. for me so that I can be born here and so that I can be considered, you know, a quote unquote citizen so that I can have a quote unquote better life. And, you know, they risk their lives for me and, and not just me, you know, there's a lot of other people like me that there's the same story. And it's like Cardenas, I'm sure his family probably, I'm not aware, but his family or maybe not his parents, but like, you know, um, his grandparents or people from his past, they have to do the same thing. And it's like he's not taking that into account that he is taking away money for people from people to provide for their families so that they can live here and so that their family and whatever 
um, country they're from that they can be well off to because you know they're paid like two dollars the hour from where they're from or even lower so it's just it's horrible and so you know I think it's important that we also listen to people from the community you know so right now we're gonna transition to Katie the community has come through for Mexican Independence Day at La Villita as the event by Juntos por la Villita united community members to dance, sing, draw posters, spread awareness on the issue, and all while preserving the celebration of the little freedom we have as Mexicans. Juntos por la Villita was glad to have the community united, and members who care and support the Disco Mall. Katie Bedoya has been an active Little Village resident and who attends Juntos por la Villita's events and is going to share with us her experience and opinions. Let's take a look. I went to the Hicks de la Revolución um, event on uh, Mexican Independence Day. And so during that whole event and after, I guess there was like a lot of like reflectioning that I did. And I feel like I wouldn't have expected many like adults or like elderly people to like know what's going on. But I was just, I was really surprised to hear, like, the vendors and to hear, um, you know, like, elder folks talking about, you know, what's going on and how, like, they care. And I feel like that's, like, I guess, like, a, a bad misconception of, like, you know, like, younger people like us who, I guess, sort of feel like, who don't feel confident in telling maybe, like, their parents, you know, like, what's going on because maybe they don't think that they'll listen to us, to, like, someone like us. But I think that's like the total opposite because, you know, like, you know, from that whole experience and from like a lot of like um, going on ever since the whole um, Novak and Little Village situation, you know, they definitely care. I think education is probably like the number one tool that we need for all of us to understand what's going on. And I, I think we also need to be open to listen. I think that's also very important. And I think events, you know, like the Isla Revolución are very, very helpful because it just brings us all together to listen to each other and to stay informed with what's going on. And I think that's just super, super important. Maybe it might not be the solution to stop to stopping gentrification in Little Village, but it's probably it it's like for sure like a step, you know, a longer path of, you know, taking this down. I love that. And especially how she ended it, you know, she's like making it clear this is probably not the solution but it's part of the solution you know and you know Katie brings up a good point you know she says these events they bring people together and she found it surprising that elderly folks were there and in support and they wanted to do something and you know I think that speaks volume because we got to remember um, they have jobs to work especially during the pandemic they have to be they have to work you know rent how is rent going to be paid how is food going to be put in the table um, a lot of them have families, you know, and they're taking their time to, you know, sacrifice some of these, you know, necessities for themselves and their families because they they know that if maybe they they don't stand their grounds or they go by with silence that they're they're basically going to allow them to win. You know, they're going to allow Cardenas to win and Novak to win and Little Village won't be what it is. It's so refreshing to see that no matter the generation, it seems that we're all on the same uh, consensus that we that we should be fighting against Novak or or Hilco. You know, it's it's uh, it's not an easy fight, of course not, but 
we're going to we're going to see like so many uh, like people in the opposition and and even people who who are for that you know and i think the the biggest takeaway from what she said for me was uh was that we need to educate our people like no matter the age you know like we need to we need to make sure that we all that we're all on the same page and and that we're uh that we're together that we're unified even just to think of education as and to like learn about what gentrification is you know we don't even I think we had to find that out in ourselves once, like, not just things started happening in a Little Village, but, like, when we saw things happen in Pilsen, um, we were kind of confused, you know, because, you know, I wasn't raised in Pilsen. I was raised here in Little Village, but I was aware of Pilsen, and I was aware of, like, its, you know, Mexican culture or Latinx culture. And once I started to see a shift, I was like, what's going on? But, you know, it's, like, things like that we never learned in our schools, and even just that, like, involving that kind of education into schooling is necessary, especially now. Another thing Katie was happy to share with us is her experience shopping in the discount mall after finding her perfect prom dress and how it made her feel. Let's take a look. Wow, like, you don't understand. Like, I totally fell in love with that, and, like, I have so many good memories with that dress, too. I bought my dress at the discount mall and then I went to go get my, I think it's called, is it a crochet? Like the flowers that they have, like that you have on your wrist. I had that done in Pilsen and then I went to go take pictures of the Selena mural. Mis primas and I, we went to go take pictures um, in that mural and that just felt, oh my gosh, it feels like so surreal thinking about it, but that was such a, it was such a special experience. It was almost like wearing my culture on top of me for prom. That was, it was really, really special. See, you know, this is what the discount mall, you know, brings to us. You know, it just brings memory. It brings our culture. It brings love. It it just brings a whole lot of emotions. And I just love how she, she ended that. It was how she said that her wearing the dress specifically from the discount mall was almost like her wearing her culture. And, you know, some clips I didn't include, but um, Katie was talking about how even people that didn't know her in school, when she went to prom, that they were telling her, like, oh, I'm, like, in love with your dress and where you get it and that she looked so pretty. And, you know, this was at a a good moment for Katie because she felt very confident already, especially with the dress that she had found. And so her telling them, like, oh, I got it from the disco mall and, you know, that is from my neighborhood and... It just it just made it even more special. And it's just something important to highlight that the vendors do this to us, you know, like they bring they bring warmth to our hearts. And it even like makes brings it to the question, like how the disco mall is culturally important to the buyers. Definitely. You'll never find quinceanera dresses at a Target, you know, like this is a, a slice of Mexico that you're that you're getting here in the neighborhood. And it's. That's like, that's the coolest thing, I think. I think any community will benefit from having like another culture other than American culture in in their neighborhood, you know? And not something that's like commodified to sell, you know? Obviously, it's a, it's a mall, you know, you're going to buy stuff. But, you know, this is, this is like people bringing their own heritage to share. Julio Anaya, a longtime resident of Little Village and co-founder of the organization Little Village Local, 
has given a lot of exposure to what's been happening with the discount mall. Since the mall sale to Novak construction has already happened, gentrification seems almost inevitable. Despite the seemingly futile situation, Julio discussed the value of La Vita and gave some advice on where we should be focusing our attention. What La Vita means to me, well, you know, coming from, uh, coming from Mexico, this really was the only place that we could come, you know, as immigrants. It was the only place that would be inviting uh, enough of us to be able to start a life here in the United States. You know, we, uh, we sold everything we had, almost everything we had, you know, just a little bit left over if my parents were retired or they left. We sold everything, came over here. Uh, I got put into the CPA system and went to Emiliano Zapata. So I grew, I, I went to school in the village and everything, you know. It means everything to me, honestly. You know, it's where I grew up. It's where I had my best friends. It's, it's where I have most of my memories. Even when I lived in the West suburbs, I would bike every day to Little Village after school to hang out with my friends. I was in Little Village, no matter what. And I just uh, hope that people are able to wake up to the fact that uh, there's a plan, there's plans, there's a schemes behind, you know, what these other men, they don't tell us, you know, they really don't. They could care less because they're lining up their pockets and we're ultimately the ones that have to decide, you know, what happens, but... You know, hopefully next election, the other the other man election isn't that long. We are able to pick someone who really represents the neighborhood, you know, and who will not sell out the neighborhood. When we asked if it's possible to replace the cultural significance that will be lost in the possible closing, he had this to say. Without a doubt, you know, I still believe the spirits, the 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 energy of of you know what the ma is going to me or what will replace. I think it'll still live on in, in our memories. Uh, I actually had a coworker, uh, the, uh, yeah, this week, um, he, he had not gone to 26th Street for a long time because he had moved out to the suburbs. Like I worked in the suburbs. He come at, he came and asked me, he's like, hey, is it true that um, they're tearing down the mall? And I was like, yeah, it's been sold. It's, it's probably in the process of, you know, who knows what, because nobody wants to say anything. And he's like, well, you know what? I really uh, should go check it out, you know? So it's lived beyond past, you know, the current residents that are there. There's people that, you know, have gone there from generations, generations, generations. So it'll be a great loss, ultimately. Not just to Little Village, but to people who have came and lived in Little Village and have gone beyond just uh, the neighborhood. Julio believes the youth in Little Village are integral in the fight against gentrification in various ways. Uh, as I get older and I, I may become part of like the establishment, I'll get older, move on, and these kids, these youth, they will be, they will be the establishment. You know, I pray that some of them they go to school, they finish school, you know, and they are able to make changes, changes in the neighborhood for a positive. Um, you know, positive ways. Um, you know, Little Village has one of the highest uh, concentrations of youth in Chicago, if not one of the largest. So we really have to open these conversations up to kids, you know, 
to make sure they they're aware of the change and they're able to keep their you know their roots here where they grew up uh because if not we are really in danger of losing everything um our culture if if we don't have a house we don't have a life we don't have nothing looking to the future he believes home ownership is key to saving our hood see uh I've also been thinking about that. It ultimately comes down to people buying property and reinvesting their money back into the neighborhood and letting it circulate in the neighborhood. You know, if if you want to get something, some essential, buy from your local grocery store. Don't go to Target, but everyone loves Target. I'm not going to lie. I like going to Target. I go to Target with my partner all the time. So I'm guilty of that too. So, you know, we have to really invest in the neighborhood and uh, keep buying property, uh, tell people not to sell their houses because um, they will call, they will call and they will try to buy your house and they will try to give you all this money that you will think and you will know that's going to help you retire. But if you want to come back, guess what? Your house is going to be worth double and you're not going to get it or your property is going to be worth triple you're not going to get it back because you sold it, you know? So that's, I think, one method of doing that. There's various things. It's not hopeless, you know, the fight against gentrification. It's not something that's over with. It's not something that's like, uh, um, like, can we stop it? Uh, the like, can we stop it? Really, it's like a difficult question, you know. It's more like, um, yes, we can stop it, but are you willing to put in the work to reinvest in your neighborhood? Are you willing to put in the work to open conversations about gentrification in your neighborhood because they are really uncomfortable? Like honestly, like it's a really t- touchy subject. You know, when you talk to people, it's, uh, they're really passionate about it. So it's like, uh, how far are you willing to walk along, you know, to find, you know, uh, like a common ground where where you can open these conversations without, like, uh, I don't know, man, like pissing people off and stuff. Like, we had a other man message our page, uh, Little Village Local, regarding a post that we made uh, about a property that's fetched almost like a million dollars in Pilsen. And I'm pretty sure um, they probably didn't like that. We really don't care because we don't not, we, a little bit of local does not answer to politicians. We are not controlled by politicians and we're, we're not gonna, we're not gonna stay quiet. You know, even if the other men don't like us, that's fine. We don't like you either. Get out. Little Village isn't going to change overnight. One target or power plant doesn't mean that there's nothing we as a community can do to stop gentrification. It's not going to be easy, but if the youth of the neighborhood could put in the work to educate ourselves and, and others we know, if we invest in local businesses or 
or property instead of corporations and uh, and pick community leaders that that actually care about us and and our interests we'll probably see some change oh for sure you know and you know even just some things to remember you know we should not work hard to leave the hood we should work hard to love the hood you know people want to call our 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 places hoods well guess what It, it don't mean nothing to us fine we love our hood you know You're gonna say it's a bad thing, well, we're gonna say it's a beautiful thing. This segment is part of the Neighborhood Reporting Fall 2020 series, a collaboration between City Bureau and Yolo Kali's Arts Reach in Chicago. The content was produced by August Abitang, Justin Agrello, Natalie Frazier, and Giovanni Macias. Edited by August Abitang and Giovanni Macias. Special thanks to Kokoi, Katie, and Julio. That was Little Village Big Problems by August Abitang and Giovanni Macias. And now, let's take a listen to the next podcast made by Marie Moraz and Emmanuel Ramirez. Hey, Amy, what's it called? Our podcast is called Mental Health in Chicago's Latinx Communities. The two-part podcast discusses the inequalities that low-income, black and brown immigrant communities face in regards to mental health and healthcare resources and additionally combats the stigmas of mental health and questions the lack of resources in these streets. The following segment is part of the Neighborhood Reporting Fall 2020 series, a collaboration between City Bureau and Yolokali Arts Reach in Chicago. Ugh, Mom. I can't wash the dishes right now. I'm trying to listen to my podcast. Hey, it's me, Marie. And it's your boy, Emmanuel. And this is our podcast. Sit back as these Yolo-licious frequencies melt your brain into sparkly, sonic, saucy sound soup. And as we tackle conversations that everybody and their mama is too scared to have, or you know, just chismear un poquito. Oh, hey Marie. Oh, what up, mommy? Nice to see you virtually. We here, you know, just us teens. Marie girl, how have you been feeling lately, you know, with all the craziness that has surrounded us from corona, school, elections? Child, it's been hard these days. Mm-hmm, you know it. 2020's been a nasty year. Honestly, G, I've been trying to hang in there since Miss Rona decided to stop by, not only throwing my senior year into a dumpster fire, but also threw my freshman college experience out the window with all this virtual learning, and don't even get me started on being quarantined with my family. How about you? You know... Since the beginning of the quarantine back in March 2020, I've been much better lately. Trying to focus on the positive side of things, no matter how small that might be, like baking a pie, free time to listen to music, or even just going to sleep. At times like these, I feel like the worst thing that you could do is focus on the negative, even though some of us might be surrounded by nothing but it. You know, these are very important things to talk about, and that leads us to today's topic of discussion, mental health. What do you be thinking about when you hear mental health? Therapy, faux show. Breathing exercises as well as that 54321 exercise. You know that one? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that one. And self-care with the avocado mask. 
taking a day off when you're not feeling it and just caring for your mental well-being. How about you? Well, for me, I hear the sounds of sad music and ASMR, the taste of water and tea, the smell of incense and dessert-scented candles. I just have the feeling of the warmth of my bed and a cold pillow. That's what I associate with mental health because that's how I maintain it. Looking out for yourself and also paying attention to how it is that you're speaking, feeling, and acting. You know, that was very interesting to hear about our different perspectives on mental health. But maybe let's brighten up a little bit more and hear about what some of our family has to say about it. So first, let's listen to what some of our siblings had to say when we asked them about mental health and what it meant to them. My name is Mariana Ramirez. I'm about to be 13 years old and I like to do art and I like to eat chips. I'm Sarah and I'm 17. My name is Mario Ramirez. I am 20 years old. I am currently a college student, a photographer, as well as a dancer. What mental health means to me is to enjoy what you're doing and do the things that you love to do and have a healthy relationship with people. Mental health to me means when somebody has problems and they kind of don't know how to like solve those problems on their own or they don't have people to help them so they kind of keep it bottled up inside. What mental health means to me is coping and dealing with stress in difficult situations that are going on in life, whether it would be school, work, family, friends, or life in general. Just try to stay in a healthy mental state. How I cope with hard situations is I think about it and I do what relaxes me so I won't have a lot of stress about it. I ask people to help me with that decision to make sure I'm doing the right thing. I wouldn't say cope, but I tend to cry a lot, like a lot, a lot. And then I hear music while I'm crying. <laughs> And then I cry more, and then I just start laughing, and then I cry even harder. Well, what I do to cope with hard situations is I love listening to music. I feel music is key to everyone, whether in what difficult situation we're dealing with. Music is always helpful, and taking care of myself. Working out is the best medicine to me, so I love working out. It gets me away from the world. Dancing as well. And how do you notice signs in family and friends that they're not doing so well? I noticed that they don't open up as much and they act different. Like, are always sad, never happy. Maybe that they spend a lot of time alone and they don't open up as much. With my family, no, not really, because they tend to have a persona where nothing can bother them, nothing, like, you know, can break them, and they think they're, like, so strong that they know how to handle everything on their own. Versus my friends, sometimes I notice within them, like, they're becoming more distant, and I try to reach out, but if they want to be alone, that way they could do with it on their own, then, like, you know, I let them have space, but I do try to, like, you know, help them if they do need help. Well, the signs that I might notice for friends and family is probably one day they're having a good time with you, laughing, speaking, having a great conversation with you, and then the next, you might see they're very silent, or their head is down, they're always looking at their phone, and they're not sure what to say, they're just ignoring every single conversation that you're trying to have with them. That's what I might probably see when you see family and friends that aren't doing so well. 
What signs or behaviors do you look out for within yourself when you're not doing well? Some reflexes is either I cry a lot and I just don't go up to people as much or I spend a lot of time alone in like my room or something. Maybe I don't do any work or like take care of myself as much i don't think i have any signs i think it's just more like i'm not the happiest or like goofiest person like i just tend to like be like a debbie downer i guess and i'm just like quiet and i'm like okay well whatever versus like how i actually am is like a goofball and a crackhead i guess those are a couple signs in your opinion should mental health be normalized more i think it should because it's a big thing if you want work to be done you need to have a good attitude and things like that and it can make you like drift off to people because they might think oh they have no more love for anything yes i do think that's something that people should start talking about because it does affect a lot of people in my generation and you know in the generation before us and it could affect those in the generation after us like it's something that i think it's important that we should talk about to help kids you know growing up and adults as well yes i believe mental health should be normalized more we've all had a difficult year this year specifically 2020 dealing with covid depression has gone up a lot more this year and mental health is something that should be taken more seriously wow that was a hot take <laughs> So now let's ask the same questions, but to our parents and to hear what in the world they're gonna come up with this time. My name is Sylvia and I'm 47. Uh, Leticia de Lara, 46 años de edad, signo Géminis. Mi nombre es Mario Enrique Ramírez, tengo 46 años de edad. Tengo tres hijos, dos hijos y una hija, eh, una adolescente, una jovencita y uno mayor. Mental health means a lot of different things. It can mean ones having situations that are not real going in their head. It can also be where you saw something and the phase of just seeing what you saw can hit you. Your mental state can completely turn different. Mental health also is how you deal with things. It could be verbal abuse, physical abuse. Your state of mind is very powerful that sometimes, yes, mental health are issues that are bad, but not that bad either. You know how to control them if you get help. It's a sickness. You don't pick, that doesn't choose a person for their age, their sex, their social status. It's something that any of us can suffer at any point in our lives. Mental health is estar saludable de la mente, no estar loco. How do I deal with hard situations? It's very difficult because when you're going through something really hard, at least for me, I shut down. I don't let nobody in because I'm dealing with my hardship myself. And dealing with it is just making sure that I come out on top, but by myself. Me personally, I pray and, and listen to music or sometimes bent to very specific key people in my life. I have never been to a psychologist or a psychiatrist. I tried, but I feel weird when talking to a stranger about my issues. Como me cuido o como enfrento a situaciones difíciles. A situaciones difíciles pensando en el problema y viendo cómo reaccionar y cómo me cuido. Depende de lo que sea, si es una situación de trabajo, si es una situación familiar, es depende. Do you notice the signs in family and friends that aren't doing so well? Yes and no because there's a thing where, you know, not everybody knows what one carries inside. You know, they can have a 
beautiful smile on the outside and something hurtful, you know, something tragic that are that they're going through. But every time you would ask or you, you ask, how are you? I'm fine. Literally to saying, yes, you do. Sometimes you don't because some people might have their faces and say, you know, and you can ask, is everything okay? Are you okay? What's going on? Do you want to talk? Some people might, some people don't. And how do you notice signs in family and friends that they're not doing so well? One can be que siempre están muy agresivos o sus emociones muy cambiantes. Otro puede ser que you can see it on their faces. Otro puede ser withdrawal. Otro puede ser substance abuse. Otro puede ser simplemente un just un cambio de actitud, cambio de personalidad. Hay personas que they probably hide it really well. So those are the tricky ones. En su forma de actuar, en su forma de hablar, en su forma de reaccionar, en su forma de pensar, de la manera que cómo se expresan, cómo miran y los movimientos que hacen. What signs or behaviors do you look out for within yourself? That's kind of hard. I see myself pulling away from people, you know, don't want to fit into the drama that people might be going through. I'd rather just tough it out myself, whatever I'm going through. If I need help, I'll ask a particular person. I wouldn't want my daughters to see, but sometimes, you know, asking them, what can I do or how can I do this is the way things are with me. When you lose interest on the normal things in life and when you don't care about yourself. Accionando rápidamente, tal vez teniendo miedo. Do you believe mental health should be normalized more? Yes, I do. Debería normalizarse más la salud mental. Pues sí, tienes control de ti mismo. No estar haciendo expresiones de... Algo así, expresiones fuertes. Expresiones negativas. Como a mi hijo que a veces le dan los ataques. Que le digo, mi hijo... Que... Eso. Esas son expresiones no normales. Definitely. Because somebody who has mental health issues, it is already going through a lot of pain. And for someone to judge them based on whatever issue it might be, could make it really bad for them. And difficult for them to go out and reach for help. Reach out. And difficult for them to get well. So Marie, what you thought? Did you expect answers such as these from our beloved family people? Honestly, I think I saw it coming with my mom since she kind of has this negative connotation with mental health, which I think is a generational thing. But what my sister Sarah said on the other hand though, was a complete surprise, like no cap. Like with our family and the built wall around yourself type feel, like she has a definite point about that. What about you and me? what you think? Well, it was great to hear what my family thought about a topic such as mental health because it's something that's often so disregarded or unspoken about in the family setting. And when my dad was talking about how I blow up and act all crazy, yeah. uh-uh, I ain't having it. Not trying to sabotage me on my own podcast. Oh my God. But overall, being trapped inside the house with my family for the last 9,000 months has allowed me to get to know my family much more. And quarantine has given my family and I the opportunity to bond and be closer than ever. You know, in a way, forcing us to be there for one another. And when there is a bump in the road, you got to end it then and there to keep moving forward. 
And in a sense, I think I learned a little bit more about myself in this quarantine. Speaking of which, let's talk about how we take care of ourselves and give some tips on how others can look after their mental health, whether it's relaxing or activities that you can do to uplift yourself in hard moments. Marie, what should be doing to take care of your mental health at home? Honestly though, I'd be taking an hour long shower. Don't come at me with that water bill. Okay, I get it, it's big, it's big. No, you be running your mom a water bill. Oh. <laughs> so for my mental health though like a nice steaming shower like some like facial cleansers with a mask putting music lo-fi even you know the real question is do you take showers or baths oof showers yeah baths is musty <laughs> Well, okay, some of us don't have the tub to be even taking baths. Me. But mm -mm, I like a good shower, not no bath soaking in some must water. No. Next. Another helpful tip, anything with skincare or hair care is super relaxing and allows you to de-stress and think about something other than whatever it is that you might be thinking about. I personally love a good hair care routine, so putting on a hair mask or deep conditioner or anything like that. I think that when you can distract your five senses, they really help you to de-stress and forget about what it is that's depriving your mind at the moment. When it comes to relaxing, obviously listening to my music, lighting candles and incense, doing some art, whether that's journaling, scrapbooking. Scrapbooking? <laughs> okay, we ain't no grandmas, but you know, <laughs> journaling, <laughs> journaling, painting, drawing. And you know, another thing that I would like to mention is at times when I feel like I, I can't take care of myself at the moment, I enjoy taking care of my plants. I, I love cleaning my plants, watering my plants, giving them the sun they need. Get rid of those brown leaves because they are dirty and dead. They need to stop soaking up the nutrients from the live part. It's kind of the same way with me too. Like, you know, you with your plants, me with my cat children, you know? Like sometimes when I like don't want to get out of bed, don't want to take a shower and stuff like that, which is like those very rare days where it's like a hard time to like just get up in the morning they go into my bed and they just start crying like mom or meow meow like i'm hungry feed me and i'm like at least i can take care of you like i guess they gonna get you out of bed <laughs> oh my god yes you know another helpful tip would be something as simple as having an everyday routine let's hear with elizabeth Christostomo, a school-based counselor for in Los chicago how to say about her self-care and what it looks like to get hurt through the day the world is kind of like in a mock, right? Like in a fog. So even this interaction right now, it's not as genuine as it would be if we were in person. This is a mock. Everything is a little bit delayed. Classes have really no passing period. Meetings for people who are doing work from home have no grace period too, right? We're all just kind of in this robotic kind of stance. So I would recommend for everyone to come up with a routine. For me, I really struggle with seasonal affective disorder that really affects me. So what I've done is even though I'm not a morning person at all i wake up earlier so i can see the sunrise and that makes me feel good i have my desk by the window so i could be right by the sun i have scheduled into my day my meals what i'm gonna do that day for self-care and involve some movement i love to use dance as a way to stress relief so if i have like really stressful meetings back to back i'll make sure that i have time for at least like a 20 minute dance session in between of that so i can kind of get rid of some of that intensity in my body because trauma and mental health 
they're both connected, right? Like the mind and the body. So if you're not relaxed, you're going to create that tension that can cause a lot of illnesses and things like stomach aches, not being able to sleep. I know a lot of my students are not sleeping right now. I know I'm not sleeping as well. But again, you kind of have to create a routine so that you mock like a new day. Like I took a shower every single day as soon as I wake up because I'm reminding my body and my psyche today is a new day. We're going to wear a different shirt. We're going to wear a different outfit, but like making something to look forward to every day. Like, okay, I'm going to make myself, you know, a really bomb pancake stack and I'm going to do, you know, X, Y, Z to kind of get yourself through the day because it's really hard. But I would say a routine is really going to help with that anxiety of what am I doing? What What is today going to bring as much as we can try to control? And then with people who have depression, it's going to get them that motivation to kind of get through the day. Well, we've spoken about our different strategies and activities that we've been doing. However, what did you think about what our parents thought about mental health, Marie? Did you expect it? And why do you think they answered so differently than the young delinquents? Delinquents? Well, I think it's because we obviously come from a different generation than they do. Duh, Emmy. But like, besides that, it's cause like they be raised differently from what we were. Like from an older generation of our grandparents and they had an entirely different social norms than what we do today, you know? Como que sí, I agree with you for sure. Pero como que like, I think another big factor is how they are in this overlap where they're from this generation with different beliefs and customs, living in this world where all the youth are like, mental health, tú sabes? See, obviously. I definitely noticed that when I asked the first question, what does mental health mean to you? My parents answered on the, I guess you could say negative side of things. So mental illness, depression, anxiety, and I guess didn't think about something as simple as maintaining your happiness and well-being as also mental health. My parents were saying the exact same thing. I think we should continue on with some helpful tips specifically to our parents and older folk, how they can look after their mental health, whether it's relaxing or activities you can do to uplift yourselves in hard times. For sure, I think some amazing tips that parents and older folk can try is at the end of the day, alone time and escaping from the family is the best thing that you can ever do. You know, whether that's simply watching the TV, reading a book, getting some sleep, in you know you can even run away on a vacation just try to get some away time from your family that you be seeing 24 7 or even doing things for yourself though like cooking and cleaning for yourself because like there's some days where you're just like you know what i'm about to make myself a delicious sofa with el pastor on top of it like who knows or maybe you just want to clean up your room because like hey there's like something you, you always wanted to do with your room or like living room or something like that just do it for yourself yes additionally speaking on the phone with family and friends marie me and you now we be watching our parents they could spend hours on the phone talking with family and friends they could be from a block away they could be all the way from mexico and the worst part is you never know who the person is they bring you the phone they're like say hello and i'm like who is this i'm like who is this who is this and another huge thing is praying or religion i think that another big factor for how our parents view mental health is religion especially being that me and you are both from a hispanic community i was raised and still am catholic and within the religious community mental health is something that is often disregarded or seen as something to ignore and often criticized like ah yes or whatever you know some people might even use religion in a way that isn't necessarily effective like praying the depression away or whatever the case may be 
But I do think that it is important to note that religion and prayer in itself isn't a bad thing or against mental health, more so about how every person uses it, and in some cases can be beneficial. My own church and priest have actually been talking more openly about mental health in recent months, speaking about how people are facing these times stuck at home and quarantine, and being attentive to signs showing you or a loved one is dealing with something or going through a hard time. Additionally, many years before, if you committed suicide, you wouldn't have a funeral or religious ceremony in your name and weren't even allowed to be buried in a Catholic cemetery. Really? But now the Catholic Church is more understanding of mental health issues that many people have and suffer from, even down to demonic possessions. Oh my. Now, before a priest does an exorcism on a suspected person, they have a criteria to evaluate if that really is what's happening or any sort of mental illness such as schizophrenia or whatever it may be. By doing the psychiatric and psychological evaluations needed. Yes! And many changes like these have been made just in probably the last 50 years, which is so recent. I think that it shows good promise to understanding deeper issues that people face and opens newer generations up to mental health and what it even is. Instead of reaching out to medical professionals such as a psychologist or therapist, many would also rather reach out to a priest, which many more traditional people can relate to. So religion and faith can definitely be something helpful for adults and older generations. A whole support system. Okay, so shifting the conversation a thicky-nicky bit, I wanted us to talk about community resources. Who got them? Who want them? What is this, honey? How can somebody do more than personal self-care to benefit their mental health? Taking baths, listening to music, putting on a face mask can be very beneficial, but at a certain point for some is ineffective and can just be a spiral of nothingness. And these are the moments when we need to seek out medical professionals, a doctor, therapist, to better take care of ourselves and pick ourselves back up. I think it's also important to note that you don't have to be at a breaking point or suffer a trauma to go to a therapist. It's so important to maintain our mental health even if we're not at our lowest point because we always want to look after ourselves and be the best and most importantly happiest version of ourselves. We also shouldn't judge those who are seeking help, trying to understand themselves and get to the happiest version of themselves too. We had the opportunity to speak with three healthcare professionals, but more importantly, mental health enthusiasts, and they told us a bit about what they do in in the community. My name is Sarah Taylor. I work in social work and I am a mental health professional and also a founder and executive director of Yosoeya. And this is something I do as an outreach passion work. Yosoeya has been around since 2012 and it's a nonprofit support system. We work for the betterment of mental and emotional support for women. A lot of different components related to mental health and empowering women of color, Latina women and indigenous women, especially black women as well. Yosoeya just stands for I am she. So it in itself is a statement to empower women in whatever walk of life, whether it be those women who are journeying from their home country, or rather those who are starting to get acclimated here, or rather those like us on this call who are bicultural, who have our ancestral identities and also American identities. So it just empowers the overall women, especially the women of color. Right now, we have kind of noticed our way of changing our work into more outreach work. And what we titled is the compassion above the crisis. So we have noticed that our work has been mental health, but more so in a sense of crisis intervention when it comes with what we see now, the pandemic. So most of our work revolves with mental health um, counseling, individual, group therapy, or just basically some of them are power panels, panel discussions, some of them are just being the support with domestic violence victims, some legal support here, referrals. It encompasses a lot of that. Most
cultivated competence are just basically work related to empowering. So anything related to mental or emotional support, if it encompasses that, we offer that one way or another. My name is Elizabeth Pichostomo, and I'm a school-based counselor for Enlace Chicago, and I provide services at Community Links High School and Farragut Career Academy. I'm also involved in campaigns such as, like, you know, Erase the Gang Database. I provide PDs for teachers, you know, like right now I'm creating one for anti-racism and addressing anti-blackness in the schools. And I also do crisis intervention, so that means that for each of my youth, if something were to happen to them, such as them getting detained by ICE or getting shot at or having suicidal or homicidal ideations, this one right here has to respond, has to be the first to respond. So technically, like I'm always on call, like I could be on a meeting or like in a session with another kid and then another kid will text me like, hey, I'm feeling suicidal. And then I like have to like jump on that, you know, so it's like, ooh, it's a lot. <laughs> I mean, I've done workshops like for other schools too, for like Morton West, and I've done like women's empowerment, and I've had sessions called Have a Talk with the Hood Therapist. This is stuff that I love to do because, you know, like the reach, it needs to be out there. Like mental health should not be so gatekeeped and so like privileged thing. It should be for everyone. My name is Arturo Carrillo. I am a licensed clinical social worker. So my training has been offering clinical mental health services and supporting parenting programming for people in low-income communities on the west side and the southwest side of Chicago. I felt social work for me was kind of like the perfect profession that I didn't realize was a profession I, I would be interested in. You know, my mom has been among the most influential people in my life. So my mom was really one to really want to, you know, help others to change the way things are in the way that they're set up to be unjust to people. <laughs> and so for me, to think that there was a profession that I could enter and learn how to do that and really be an agent of change and supporting people in their own growth, but thinking about not just a person isolated from their social environment, but also part of that social environment. And so thinking about how social work could do both, right? Support individuals on the personal level, but also think about how the society can also change and can, how the, the society itself uh, needs to be reformed in order to be able to provide a better environment for people that are often oppressed in many different ways, right? Understanding that we can provide healing for people, just like I've been trained as a clinician to support people's experiences of trauma and to be able to help people heal from those experiences of trauma, but also realizing that the system System, our society itself causes trauma, our society itself perpetuates harm. And then what do we need to do to change that, right? So holding both those spaces for me has been really important. This segment is a part of the Neighborhood Reporting Fall 2020 series, a collaboration between City Bureau and Yolokali Arts Street in Chicago. The content was produced by Marie Meraz and Manuel Ramirez Alex Arriaga and Amanda Tagale. Edited by Emmanuel Ramirez and Marie Meraz. You're listening to WLPN LP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpin' Radio. Hello everybody, welcome back to the second hour of Neighborhood Reporting, a series of podcasts made by the Your Story, Your Way students in collaboration with City Bureau Fellows. Y'all just heard part one of Mental Health in Chicago's Latinx Communities by Marie Moraes and Emmanuel Ramirez. And now let's get into part two. The following segment is part of the Neighborhood Reporting Fall 2020 series, a collaboration between City Bureau and Yolokali Arts Reach in Chicago. Ugh, Mom. I can't wash the dishes right now. I'm trying to listen to my podcast. <laughs> 
me Marie. And it's your boy Emmanuel. And this is our podcast. Sit back as these delicious frequencies melt your brain into sparkly, sonic, saucy sound soup. And as we tackle conversations that everybody and their mama is too scared to have, or you know, just cheese me out un poquito. Ugh, hey Marie. Ugh, hey Emmy. Marie girl, I got a little riddle for you. Oh geez. Oh, and shout out to Arturo for teaching me this too. So, what is the only population of people in the US that have a constitutional guarantee to healthcare and mental health resources? Hmm, I don't know. Girl, think harder, and no other people have universal guaranteed access to mental health care like they do. I'm stuck. I don't even know. Tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me. Prisoners. Prisoners are the only population in this country to have a constitutional guarantee to health care and mental health care. So to add on, what is then the biggest mental health hospital in the country? Oh my God. Does does that mean? Yup. Cook County Jail. For real? Girl, can you believe that this is the system that we have to deal with? It's the unequal opportunity to access mental health care for me, honey. Oof. A mess. So, previously we spoke with three mental health professionals, Sarah Taylor, Elizabeth Crisostomo, and Arturo Carrillo, and they told us a bit about what they do within the community. So Marie, what would you say is the importance of mental health resources like these in Little Village? I would say that it's extremely important to have resources that aren't external. Like these resources were created by the community for the community, which I think is so refreshing to see, especially in times such as these, where we need each other the most. Founder and executive director of Yoise Eya, Sarah Taylor, also told us her take on the importance of mental health services such as Yoise Eya and teams like these, and why they're more necessary and in demand than ever. During this pandemic, we have reached 54 individuals, and that's because I had to put a cap on it. I guarantee you, if I hadn't put a cap, and we're only, with 12 of us in the organization, the total, we're only six of us that have mental health professional background. I can only imagine if we didn't put a cap on it. So it just shows that the mental health part has been exacerbated, which also shows that I'm sure mental health facilities across the city are being exhausted. A lot of times, we're not used to this bombardment of needs. We're not, this is a crisis within a crisis, let's say that, which means that a lot of people, unfortunately, are getting brief short-term therapy, which and sometimes some of them require long-term. Like, you know, hey, you should have came to me earlier. You already had anxiety and now your anxiety has been exacerbated. Now we need medication. But guess what? I don't have the capacity to give you that treatment right now because I have 30 other people that need me right now. So it's like we're playing a juggling act of the emergent needs versus those with mild, low to moderate needs. And that also can hurt a household or hurt an individual and feel neglected when they mostly need someone to talk to and to channel their emotions or a mental need. So we're playing a juggling act of which was an emergent need and putting them in the forefront, which is something we, we normally don't do in a mental health professional. So speaking about mental health in black and brown immigrant communities, what are some problems that the Chicago Latinx community are facing? Arturo Carrillo told us a bit about what he observed in his community growing up in Chicago, expressing the contrast in mental health resources then and today. 
I was born and raised to Mexican immigrant parents in South Chicago. So I, I had the experience of growing up in a working class community, low income community on the, on the south side of Chicago. And, you know, South Chicago is very disconnected from the rest of the city. It seems like not many people know about South Chicago, or if you do, you know, it's kind of like on its own little island. And so, you know, I grew up in, in a part of the city that was really, I didn't realize it till after I grew up and, you know, left for college and started you know working i just realized how chicago is really underserviced it's a, it's a community that does not have the amount of resources and supports necessary for its residents but people kind of make do with what they have and so i guess i never realized the difference until you know i left uh, south chicago and uh, for example when i went to away for college i went to u of i champaign urbana and that was a whole nother world it was seeing how the rest of people my age were living in in the suburbs and in other parts of the city that had a lot more resources and that access to education and education opportunities and so you know going from uh, being in my honors classes in high school on the south side of Chicago to walking into the University of Illinois and realizing when I was taking honors math when I go to college at U of I I end up in remedial math just because just the comparison the stark contrast of this type of education people get in inner city Chicago as compared to like the suburbs or more affluent areas of the city and then I was able to experience a semester in Europe and a semester in Italy and was able to travel through Europe and, and again and it was seeing how the rest of the world is, right? Seeing how other first world countries are actively investing in social needs and healthcare as a human right. And again, coming from America, we're, we're seeing access to healthcare as a privilege or, you know, something that's only available for certain classes of people. My first internship was working in St. Anthony Hospital's Community Wellness Program in, in Little Village. And being part of uh, the community in Little Village and working there as an intern and then subsequently later in my life as a staff, as a clinician, a therapist in that community, I, I didn't realize just the difference and the stark contrast uh, between you know parts of the city that may have I mean not a lot of resources but more resources than what South Chicago had but then of course you know later in my life I realized that compared to other parts of the city Little Village is also under-resourced right so for me it was it was always interesting just kind of as I evolved in, in my life experience to think about you know what access to care looks like what access to resources looks like for people who again would benefit from them and just like myself you know I think about how my life would have been different if I would have had maybe other resources in my life I wouldn't have struggled as much in many areas. Common before, but more prevalent than ever in an era of quarantining and COVID, many people, young and old, have been stressed and worried, isolated from the rest of the world and restrictions put on their day-to-day -day lives. Many are left balancing school, jobs, family, and so much more, accompanying the pandemic with anxiety, depression, and a widespread feeling of vulnerability. When asked how students specifically are dealing with these times, Elizabeth told us that, Honestly, it's been really hard. I think that all students right now are really really stressed out they're stressed out about things that already were in their way such as access to resources right opportunities job opportunities just meeting the expectation of what used to be happening in the school a lot of the stress right now is just based on survivalship a lot of our, our parents here and our caretakers are essential workers including a lot of youth as well and the accessibility to healthcare, right has been hugely disproportionate so a lot of of our families and our youth have been getting the virus, which actually touches on complex trauma. Complex trauma is the cycle of being exposed to something that they can't control, which is just as 
traumatic as like a natural disaster, but except every single day since we've been in quarantine. And also I would say that there's a huge spike in like anxiety, you know, fearful of what's to come since we really don't know what's going to happen in the month, right? Or like in a week, are we going to shut down? Are we not? As well as depression too, you know, we're really isolated. A lot of my youth are severely depressed even before the pandemic. It's just made things worse. You know, we can't go anywhere. We can't even have a lot of us like a proper session because there's not enough time also, but like a private space and an opportunity to be vulnerable because of those things. And also a lot of responsibilities, a lot of the youth that I know are working and are also providing that caretaker role for their younger siblings and other children in the home. So I would say a combination of that complex trauma, a lot of anxiety of uncertainty and depression as well. Dealing with dancing barely above the poverty line, not affording food, housing, college, being of color or undocumented, juggling all these issues while trying to stay alive is something very prevalent in the Little Village community. Additionally, hostile family members, especially in the pandemic, while you're quarantined with them, some feel powerless and have no place to turn. As well as parents juggling with working from home, taking care of children, it has been a roller coaster of so many challenges. Sarah told us a bit about how parents were facing these times and how mental health differs between parents in regards to their roles in the household and the children and what they must be feeling. What I've noticed a lot in the Latino community is anxiety, the unknown. There's a lot of people providing food and a lot of food pantries and a lot of good munitions, a lot of movement and mobilization in getting people the resources. But as far as the emotional aspect of it, it's the anxiety because we don't know what's going to happen next. The Trump administration is still going on and still going on strong. It may be weakening itself little by little, but it's still leaving some anxiety residue. You know, I still feel unsure about this country. And I think the anxiety of what's unknown, am I going to lose my job or my job can sustain itself or the restaurant can stay open? Like stuff like that, it's uncertain. We all know that Latinos, we come in from large households and since the pandemic and the quarantine, it's nice to say that we come from an household and maybe fun, but quarantine in, in, a, in a big household, it's a whole different ball game, especially for house in itself. The structure is small and we're used to living like that, but not for a long period of time. So what I always suggest families, especially those of families of color who are used to being confined in one space, that we have to find our safe spaces, whether it be in somewhere in the home or outside of the home. Regardless, there's a pandemic, we can't be in the streets, but there has to be homes that involve like environmental aspects that we can use to help us navigate that emotional, mental need. And a lot of the gender differences regarding the male in the home, he's expected to provide. And a lot of that has been jeopardized because of the pandemic and the quarantine. Now the woman feels guilty. It's like, I really can't help it interfere right here. And all I can do is be at home with my kids, but I also can't understand my kids' educational needs because that's not my first language. This is not what I do. This is not what I'm familiar with. So you're noticing a household with mom and dad or co-parenting are experiencing some, they're bumping heads, some tensions because their roles have changed and it kind of afflict their identity, their ego. Like I'm not used to this. Now I'm being challenged in a different way, but I don't like it. I'm being challenged, but it's a forced kind of challenge, something that I'm not comfortable with. So a lot of the gender roles in a household are causing some tension and some uncomfortability is happening. Another major issue within the Latinx community is stigmas about mental health. It being something made up or common phrases that we've all heard a hundred times, like you need to work harder, get off your phone, just ignore how you're feeling, on and on. 
or if you speak about how you're feeling or acknowledge it, people think you're a part of this new generation of kids that's finding excuses for everything. But older generations just might be ignoring their own personal problems and traumas, suffering in silence as they suppress it because of these so-called norms that are placed on our colored communities. A lot of times, counseling is demonized, right? Like mental health is very stigmatized, especially in communities of color. It's definitely seen as something to have privilege to, right? Like, oh, that's like a white people thing. And it also comes to access. It's really hard to get mental health services wherever you go, especially in communities of color. There's nothing that really just grinds my gears. Like when parents say, oh, nada más le tienes que echar ganas. Like, what? <laughs> that one's like really gets the gold star right there. Or, uh, Estás mucho en tu mente, or necesitas trabajar, or necesitas uh, quitarte del teléfono. Like, that's not even why I'm depressed, bro. <laughs> I think it also comes to a normalization of trauma. Like, I think a lot of people of color, and especially like in Latinx communities, like we normalize traumatic events. We say, oh, esa cosa que le pasó a esa persona, o algo me pasó a mí. It's always underlined as something that happened, and that's it. But we don't really have time to look at the after effect, which is like the actual trauma risk. Response, it's very much swept under the rug and I think that older people like señoras are like no eso es de locos there is a huge stigma with the older peeps not buying into it when it's like uh, maybe grandma you are also depressed or maybe grandma like you have anxiety or actually grandma like you went through a lot of trauma for myself as a millennial there are there is a lot of unresolved childhood trauma in our parents especially based on survivalship and I think that's really important once you are able to have those conversations if you can if you are safe to like exploring that with your parent and perhaps even like joining like a group is going to be very eye-opening because there's this notion of why can't you xyz like you have all these things that i didn't have as a child i when i was you know seven i was herding a mountain of goats and it's like those are not the same things like we're not going through the same like struggles and like you were robbed of your childhood because of survival shit because of all, all these other systems that were in place that, that targeted you and like let's do something about it to also address like the grief there's a lot of grief in our community right now and, and even around things of of the past as well Another big issue that affects so many, especially in our communities, is structural violence and how a system can perpetuate trauma in our very own environment. Furthermore, there's much more to heal and fix in our communities. The biggest question, why do black and brown communities have so little mental health resources? What has to happen for our community to receive the healthcare facilities and professionals it so rightfully deserves? An assessment of mental health needs and access barriers in predominantly Latinx community areas were collected in the 2018 report, Uplifting Voices to Create New Alternatives, Documenting the Mental Health Crisis for Adults on Chicago's Southwest Side, a study coordinated by Arturo Carrillo in collaboration with many other mental health professionals and community-based organizations. They surveyed over 2,800 primarily Latinx adults from 10 community areas, of those including Little Village and Pilsen, to collect quantitative data on their most pressing emotional needs, desire to accessing professional mental health services, and the barriers to accessing professional mental health services. I was already enrolled in a PhD program. I was doing community research and within a very collaborative working space, we all developed an initiative to do a, a wide scale community research project that started from Pilsen down to West Lawn, right? So all the Southwest side neighborhoods, we worked with different organizations. What we found was the overwhelming majority of people 
were dealing with some form of depression, followed by anxiety, acculturation stress, following other mental health needs that people identified and, and relationship needs and parenting needs. The second question, we found that when we asked people if they were interested in seeking mental health supports, 80% of the respondents said yes or probably yes. And our third question was, what are the things that are keeping you from accessing those services? And so we put 10 different things on the list and 57% of the people said cost. The lowest ranked barriers were stigma. Esos servicios no servirían para nada was the other option, right? It was like, esos servicios son para locos, which we consider stigma. And then finally, the lowest rated barrier was my partner or my family would not approve. Arturo then elaborated in further detail what concerns these statistics present. When I was a clinician offering free mental health services in Spanish that are culturally attuned, that are responsive to people's cultural understanding, their religious understanding, their personal understanding, we always had a wait list of people looking for mental health services. And now I was working with predominantly women at the time, but over time I saw that even the number of men we were serving were increasing over time. And in practice, I was seeing that we had a lot of people and we just did not have enough therapists. And over the years, the more therapists I would hire through the program, our wait list did not drop at all. More people were coming in and if you had more therapists that just meant more people were being seen but not necessarily that we were addressing the overwhelming demand right there was so much interest in getting support so what that took me to ask the question of what is it how is it that we as community advocates as social workers as community residents can really sit with the question of what is it that's limiting people's access to mental health services so what was really interesting though in our findings is that when we broke down the percentages not only that people would be interested in mental health services but they almost all are interested in accessing mental health services so when you have a demand that large, it clicked for me, right? This is why we always had a wait list, right? There is that many people who are actively interested in professional mental health services. And we were really clear for us, it's about serving what people desire to access professional mental health services, because I always think about it this way, right? If you're uninsured, if you don't have access to a doctor, you may go to a curandera, you may go to a botanica to get some sort of treatment by a non-professional or community professional, however you want to name it, but not a medical doctor. If you don't have health insurance, you won't see a medical doctor unless you're going to the emergency department at which point then you're seeing probably a doctor way too late. Again, not to say there's no benefits to curanderas or botanicas, but what happens is when people are not offered a choice to choose, when things are being chosen for you, right? When you're saying you don't have the right to see a doctor, you can only kind of rascarte con tus propias uñas, como diríamos, then unfortunately that to me is a very problematic thing. If I'm given access to a doctor and I choose to go other routes, then that's absolutely fine. So for us to say in this survey, would you choose to go to a professional and you have 80% people saying yes or probably yes, then to me, this changes the entire paradigm. It's not that people are not wanting to go. It's that maybe they're not giving the choice. So that led to our third question. And we found that cost, lack of health insurance, not knowing where to go and no services not being in my area, in my neighborhood, were the top four barriers. So we call those the structural barriers. That's the way the system is set up to keep people from accessing the care they need, right? Because if you have money, if you have health insurance, and if you live in a wealthy community, you will have access to mental health services. If you don't have any of those options, then again, you're going to be left to figure it out on your own. We found that stigma was not the barrier. It was affordability, the lack of access in your community. And so if people are saying there's no therapist in your neighborhood, then where are the therapists in Chicago? Where are the social workers who graduated with me working now? And what we found is when we mapped out every therapist in the city of Chicago, we found that certain areas of the city have an enormous density of therapists 
23% of Chicago's residents live in communities that have four therapists per 1,000 community residents. So those 23% of the residents live in the most affluent communities in Chicago. The poorest communities of Chicago have a ratio of 0.2 therapists per 1,000 community residents. 77% of the city's residents who live in lower income communities have the choice of 0.2 therapists per 1,000 community residents, whereas people who live in more affluent communities have four therapists per 1,000 community residents. So that disparity to me speaks to what in academia we would call structural violence, right? This is the way the system is set up to give access and benefit one segment of the population and not the other, and that causes harm in people's lives. Moving into our final topics, questioning in what ways we can improve the problems of healthcare in the community and source out more mental health facilities and resources for our communities. How can we do that? And how can we normalize mental health? Child, these are some big questions that need some answering. Now, we obviously won't have the answer to these questions in our little itty bitty podcast, but we can definitely start conversations to think about these things. How are we perpetuating trauma and keeping stigmas about mental health alive? or even something as simple as avoiding our own emotions. Aside from the obvious need of funds and healthcare, we need to have more conversations with our families and our community about normalizing mental health and how some trauma that is still happening to us as people of color and low income that are affecting us. The more we avoid and look away, it's not going to be addressed. We're disadvantaged enough as it is because of a society that oppresses people of color, such as our beautiful selves, and gives us last place to any race because we're low income. And those I can get through this by myself and pues lo que pasa pasa mentalities, let those types of traumas be overlooked and continue. We need to see these traumas for what they are, have these conversations about how to better one another, and lose these mentalities. We are a community of resilient people. We deserve so much more than carrying ourselves from our bootstraps. Side note, can you use your friends as a support system? Yes, sir. Can you use your friends as a therapist and mindlessly scroll through Instagram as a coping method? Ooh, No, no you cannot. Some people think that they become TikTok, Instagram certified therapists when in all reality, it's truly just overanalyzing, overintellectualizing and such. If you're confused about something, please go to a medical professional, not a dancing influencer who's only doing that because they recently got a sponsorship by a meditating app, detoxing teas or waist trainers. Girl, don't do it. It's not worth it. Unless of course you're an actual therapist or social worker, which in that case, carry on. Overall, the most impactful thing you can do is check up on people. Look out for your family and friends, uplift those in need, be the change you want to see in your community. It all starts with just you, because individuals together are what make up a community. We need to challenge ourselves by asking them deep questions and taking care of ourselves. You gotta love you. And our final thoughts... In the words of Heavenly BTS's RM, no matter who you are, where you're from, your skin color, your gender identity, just speak yourself. Find your name and find your voice by speaking yourself. And in the words of La Miki Minash, it's quiet, ain't no back talk. Thanks for joining us in this rejuvenating conversation about mental health. And don't forget to tell your mama, tell your granny, tell your daddy, your sister, your brothers, your cousins, your teachers, neighbors, friends, all about what you've learned today and educate others. And that's all. Period. 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 Period.
This segment is a part of the Neighborhood Reporting Fall 2020 series, a collaboration between City Bureau and Yolokali Arts Street in Chicago. The content was produced by Marie Meraz, Emmanuel Ramirez, Alex Arriaga, and Amanda Tagade. Edited by Emmanuel Ramirez and Marie Meraz. Ugh, I can't believe my podcast is over, Mom. I'm still not washing those dishes. What up? It's Marie again. And Emmanuel. That's it for today. Time to cut the cameras. You can leave now. I'm out of here. I gotta go take care of my mental health. But no, in all seriousness, we also want to give a huge thanks and shout out to our listeners today and our special guests, Sarah, Elizabeth, and Arturo. You can find them on their socials at Yosoella Inc. at Enlace.Chicago and CollaborativeForCommunityWellness.org. And don't forget to follow Yolo Cali and Lumpin' Radio on all the socials, honey. We also want to give the biggest shout out to our City Bureau collaborators. Oh my God. Yes, thank you so much, Alex and Amanda. And special thanks to Sarah, Bettina, and Stephanie. That was Mental Health in Chicago's Latinx Communities by Marie Moraz and Emmanuel Ramirez. Next up is our final podcast, Desde la Raiz by Tona Martinez and Sandra Ortiz, highlighting the struggles local street vendors are facing economically and with police. And how the pandemic has impacted street food culture unlike ever before. This segment is a part of the Neighborhood Reporting Fall 2020 series, a collaboration between City Bureau and Yolo Kali Arts Reach in Chicago. The content was produced by Tona, Sandra, Lily, and Paco. Edited by... The Azteca Mall is a focus of the economy in the little village. That was Martin Unsueta. He's been working at Chicago Workers' Rights for over 25 years, an organization that has been guiding and supporting the Street Vendors Association of Chicago. The SVAC has been fighting on behalf of the street vendors across Chicago since 2015. In some neighborhoods of Chicago, like Little Village, Walking down the streets on a hot summer day, you can always find street vendor carts and food trucks selling ice cream, tamales, fresh fruit, raspados, chicharrones, and much more. This is a memory shared by many people of our Latino communities, and for some, it's part of their ritual. Street vendors bring many people happiness with their delicious food, but not many know enough about the business and the workers. It's not easy being an immigrant street vendor, Issues with language can make it tough to talk to English-speaking customers, and run-ins with police over licensing issues can result in potentially bad legal consequences. Since the pandemic, things have only gotten harder. But where did street vending begin? Why does it matter and who does it impact? Food vending has a long history in the United States. Let's look at the first food vendors, then come back to the recent Chicago developments and how street vending has been impacted by COVID-19. Street vendors' pushcarts were known originally as truck wagons. These wagons were first put to use in the mid-1800s by a rancher named Charles Goodnight. Food items that were commonly served were salted meats, beans, coffee, potatoes, and even biscuits. Mobile food vendors began to increase in popularity around the 1950s, when refrigerated ice cream trucks began selling ice cream and other frozen products that were aimed for children. Immigrants have been an important part of food vending history. On the West Coast, taco trucks became a popular source of mobile food in the 1970s. 
This trend began in 1974 when a man named Raul Martinez turned an ice cream truck into the first of many taco trucks in the U.S. Now, let's move back to Chicago. According to an Illinois Policy Institute analysis, there are estimated to be 1,500 food cart street vendors operating across Chicago. 45% of the street vendors are males, and 55% are females. A similar situation can be found in the food truck industry. An independent study conducted in 2013 by Andrew Wallahan shows that there are 120 licensed food trucks in Chicago. Roughly 50% are operational. Among them, 45% are males. Before 2015, in Illinois, street vendors were not allowed to sell hot food legally. It wasn't until the city hall passed an ordinance that year granting vendors the right to apply for a food vending license. But the license issue was not the only struggle for these workers. Racism also plays a part in injustices against street vendors. Martin compares Chicago to other cities with the representation of different ethnicities selling. How many people for the African-American people see you on the street? How many people in the Chinese community selling on the street, no? I know, for example, that in San Francisco, California, there are big places from the Chinese American people that are on the street and they are selling very, mm, very, <laughs> very good things, yeah, in San Francisco. But here in Chicago, this is not happening. The problem here is that we still have discrimination ideas from the city of Chicago. He explains how street vending is harder for African and Arab Americans. You know, the Devon Street in the north of Chicago, there are a lot of Arab people that are living over there. How many push cars for falafels are you seeing over there? No, there are not. So the falafels, they're, they're so very <laughs> tasty uh, <laughs> food for Arab people, but there are no pushcarts in these places. And there are no pushcarts because the police is very hard for the people that try to do something like this. In the African-American community, there are no pushcarts because in the moment that they going on the street, the police came from all over them against the uh, African-American. And the punish for, for them is worse than for the Latin American people. So this is a city that is very discriminated against the ethnic foods. Language is also something they need to grasp as well. Vendors and food truck operators could often be taken advantage because of their limited English ability conditions for the street vendors was very bad on the streets. So street vendors were receiving fees for the police. They have been arrested for the police. The problem in the court is that uh, many times the, the people in the courts doesn't speak Spanish. And when the vendors was there, people for the court speak in English to them and they doesn't understand anything. In, at the final of the courts, they accepted everything and they need to pay to the city of Chicago fees from $500 until $1,500. Now, let's focus on the workers and their personal experiences. This is Daniel Martinez. Mi nombre es Daniel y el nombre de mi food truck se llama Azteca and Sons. Cuando emigré de México, llegué con mis hermanos y ellos ya tenían trabajando en una compañía que se llamaba AAA y llegué a trabajar con ellos. Ya tiene 
hace 24 años. Mi hermano me financió una camioneta. Él, él la compró y se la fui pagando como con una renta poco a poco. Daniel got his food truck from his brother and with time he paid him back. To open and operate a food truck, new owners need to complete 45 government-mandated permits and licenses to be legally allowed to operate. These permits and licenses for food trucks can stack up to $28,000, totaling an average of $50,000 to $60,000 to start a food truck business. El primer día estaba nevando, ya que llegué cuando estaba frío. El primer día que llegué, uh, lo único que hice fue acomodar algunas sodas y ayudar a, a cargar algunas cajas que tenían comida para que mi hermano las pusiera en el horno de la camioneta. He told us about his first day working on a food truck in the winter of 2001. Since then, he has provided a whole menu of food like tacos, pizza, and sandwiches. Before the pandemic, he would drive his truck to factories with pre-cooked meals from various restaurants around the city. Now, he struggles with finding companies that will allow him to sell food to their workers. And for a while, during the beginning of the pandemic, he was not able to work. The COVID-19 crisis hit both industries hard, street vendor carts and food trucks. In cities like New York and Los Angeles, where they are allowed to vend, street vendors reported a 90% drop in their income due to reduced food traffic in places. The sales of tamales, according to Martin, have gone down because rituals have changed. People that are going to work and they pass to buy some tamales and bring for lunch in the companies. So that, that's the most selling that they have. But right now, because the pandemic, because there are many companies that are closing, that there are many companies that are not working, the selling of the tamales is low. This is low right now in this moment. But there are also trust factors that affect the relationship with customers. Algunas factorías a donde yo iba a vender, de plano dijeron que ya no querían que fuéramos a venderles porque ellos este, pues tenían miedo por los trabajadores y nosotros. Y en un principio tuvimos que de dejar de trabajar también porque de plano estaban cerrados los lugares para poder vender. De uh -huh. hecho, esta semana todavía me sigue impactando porque de los pocos lugares que me quedaron para ir a vender, Esta semana me dijeron que no podía seguir vendiendo en dos más porque los números están creciendo de contagios y ellos dijeron que pues por el momento uh, van a tener que, que parar de que fuera la lonchera. With COVID-19, there has been different resources that Martin has been a part of to help street vendors. He's not the only person trying to support them. There are local organizations helping out, such as Increase the Peace, which has set up a street vendor relief fund. So far, they raised over $45,000 for street vendors across Chicago. According to data by a volunteer committee running the effort, more than 300 vendors applied for this grant. Of the applicants, 70% were 50 years or older, and 90% did not qualify to receive a stimulus check. Street vendors can also apply for direct cash assistance to pay rent, buy groceries, or support themselves. Still, like many people, workers have hopes for the future in regards to the pandemic. La esperanza de que tengamos la vacuna, que se comiencen a relajar los números y que todos volvamos a poder tener nuestras actividades regulares, porque eso me incluye a mí en lo que es mi trabajo. Martin explains how we can support local workers in the future. 
for the street vending, I think even that we need to continue fighting and organizing, I think it's a, a very good future in the city of Chicago for people who want to sell in the street even that they uh, have some restrictions because if they use a kitchen with license so they can cook whatever they want and with this only thing they should able to sell on the street whatever the product is. Street vendors are the heart of our neighborhoods and even the economy. If this if the Azteca Mall disappear, our community is going to be down economically, really, really economically. Because Azteca Mall is a place where the people from many places, from Wisconsin, from Indiana, from wherever you know, they came here to the Azteca Mall, to the little village. They buy an elote and they eat uh, tamales and etc. To keep street vendor carts and trucks alive is a part of our memories and rituals, from enjoying a morning tamal or a chicharron as your lunch, to our beloved raspados, ice creams, and other fun antojitos, we need to create consciousness and awareness on the street working force, these hardworking, dedicated immigrant workers. So with this story, we hope that you have learned about Little Village, the interesting history of street vending and food trucks, and how they have been impacted by COVID-19. We also hope to see you share the story with others, donate to organizations like Increase the Peace to help street vendors survive this pandemic. This segment is a part of the Neighborhood Reporting Fall 2020 series, a collaboration between City Bureau and Yola Kali Arts Reach in Chicago. The content was produced by Tona, Sandra, Lily, and Paco. Edited by Tona. Hello, everyone. We're back. And that was Desde La Raiz by Tona Martinez and Sandra Ortiz. And now it's that time of the show where we must say goodbye. Thank you all so much for tuning in and shout out to the fans and the loyal listeners. And thank you to all of our special guests and contributors that help make these podcasts possible. Did you miss some of the show? Mm, bummer. Well, all three podcasts presented today will be posted on Yolokali SoundCloud for your listening pleasure. As you take a little listen, maybe share with some friends too. Also, don't forget that this is only the first show of What's Up Season 16. We've got so much more on the way, so I would definitely follow Yolokali on Instagram if you're not. Or for the grannies, Facebook. <laughs> to be caught up on all things YOLO. Tune in every day. No, don't tune in every day. <laughs> yes, tune in every day. <laughs> and tune in every Saturday from 12 to 2 p.m. to be caught up on all things YOLO. My name's August. And I'm Emmanuel, and this was What's Up on Chicago's 105.5 FM WLPN LP Lumpin' Radio. Bye. Hello, it's me. I haven't heard from you in a while. I hope it's because you're listening and enjoying our amazing, outstanding, terrific, wonderful, inspiring, delicious, funny, breathtaking, weave-snatching, lady-poppin' production. If not, you should listen to our radio show, What's Up, again. In the meantime, we'll be twerking on our next one. Here in Lumpkin Radio. 
So stay tuned for our next amazing, outstanding, terrific, wonderful, inspiring, delicious, funny, breathtaking, weave-snatching, highly amazing production. I hope that you were informed about the YOLO-licious parts of life and get your bag every day. Don't forget to listen to us on SoundCloud at YOLOKALI, on social media like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or Tumblr at YOLOKALI, or visit at YOLOKALI.org for more. We are the robots. We are the robots.